Welcome to Portland Radio Project's Podcast Co-op. Today we've got the premiere episode of Stumptown Soundcheck, a production of Portland Radio Project in collaboration with Music Portland. On Stumptown Soundcheck, you'll discover the pulse of Portland's music scene, where discussions will focus on the importance of music in society and its economic impact. From navigating industry challenges to advocating for fair and equitable policies, Stumptown Soundcheck will examine the growth and obstacles faced by music in our city. This is a must-listen for music enthusiasts and policymakers alike who are keen to learn about the intersection of music, community, and public policy. For our first episode, host Jamie Dunphy and guest Mira McLaughlin, Bruce Fife and Eben Hoffer delve into the significance of solidarity, the complexities of noise regulation, and the potential benefits of a cultural arts plan. Let's get started. This is Stumptown Soundcheck. Welcome to our conversation on music policy. I'm your host, Jamie Dunphy. I serve as chair of the Music Policy Council and as a board member for the organization Music Portland. I'm a former semi-professional musician and a policy nerd working in Oregon politics for the last 15 years. Music is a vital part of our culture. Dancing and singing and performing are key to the ideas of community and humanity. But music is also a vital part of our economy. From the musicians on stage, to the sound engineers in the back of house, the bouncers, the bartenders, but also the instrument makers, the recording engineers, the record shops, the digital rights distributors. Music is an enormously outsized economic influence, and it's important to remember that. Music isn't just a nice to have, it's pivotal to our future success as a region. For decades, Portland's music scene grew independently, organically. This used to be a city where you could work part-time as a barista and still afford your rent. And since it rains all the time, everyone sits inside and learns to play the guitar. But as Portland grows denser, that's no longer the reality on the ground. Until now, our elected leaders have never had to invest in this naturally occurring resource. Those days are over. It's vital to use the strategic public policies to ensure that Portland's live music scene thrives for decades to come. We need to make sure that the laws and regulations that are in place are fair and equitable for all musicians, regardless of genre or their level of success. In this podcast, we'll be talking to musicians, policymakers, and other experts about the intersection of music and policy. We'll explore the challenges that musicians face, the opportunities that exist, and what we can do to make sure that music continues to thrive in our society. There's an incredible amount of talent in the Portland area, and existing resources that are unparalleled in other communities. Portland has more live music venues than Austin, Texas. The music industry generates more money statewide than the cannabis industry. I'm really excited to have you all here with me today. So let's get started. I'm thrilled to be joined in our inaugural episode by fellow members of the Music Policy Council. The MPC is a group of music industry professionals, academics, and policy wonks who volunteer their time and effort towards implementing real, meaningful policy change in our region. With us today are Mara McLaughlin, founder and executive director of both Music Portland and Music Oregon. Hello there. Bruce Fife, recently retired president of the Musicians Union Local 99 and International Musicians Union Vice President. Howdy, howdy. 
and sound engineer and policy expert Eben Hoffer. Greetings. Mara, I'd love to start with you. Will you please introduce yourself and give us a little bit of history of why you formed Music Portland and the Music Policy Council to begin with? Yes, I am a native Portlander and grew up here and snuck into Satyricon underage and all of the great sort of past history. But in returning to Portland in the late 90s, seeing both a wealth of music and its dissolution, because the very growth in the city that it was helping to spur was driving it out. I came from the corporate sector, knew that it needed a formal representative organization. Some have called us the United Voice of Portland Music. And our agenda was to advocate for effective music supportive policy, to cheerlead and amplify the collective value, both to the people within our city and people outside our city, to boost tourism, to support musicians, and to make it a, a place where music professionals can actually thrive and survive. And there's a lot of work to be done, but we keep pushing on all those fronts. Bruce Fife, you're completing a career representing professional musicians. What are the biggest changes you've seen to the Portland music industry in your career, and where do you see it going next? Well, that's a great question. You know, I was a professional musician for 25 years before getting into the union business, so to speak. And as a professional musician in Portland, starting in the 80s, I was able to make a full-time living, raise a family, buy a house, do all those things that normal working people can do as a working-class musician. That has changed tremendously over the time, and the wages paid today to a lot of the, I'll say the live club scene musicians anyways, is worse than it was in 1980 when I was playing. A lot of things changed over the time that made that happen. One of the things that really initiated that most people don't know was that in the late 70s, there were court cases that turned musicians working in venues into independent contractors where they had been employees prior to that, represented by the musicians union. That change took the musicians union out of the ability to represent musicians. And you could pretty much draw a line from 1978 down to pay to play and the situation we're at now. Having said that, there were other contributing factors too. Liquor laws changed. Poker machines came into the clubs. A lot of other competing entertainment options came in. And all of those things have coalesced around changing the workplace that musicians find themselves in. The industry is broad and wide, and it's not just about live music and clubs, but everything eventually comes back to that in one form or another. And where do I see it going next? It's just going to continue to evolve. I don't know, maybe we're going to have robots in the clubs soon with the advent of AI and continuing technology. It's just hard to know exactly where it's going to go. Eben Hoffer. What are some of the biggest structural challenges that we have as it pertains to the success of music infrastructure in Portland? And what strategic choices do we need to make now to ensure that Portland grows in a successful way? Oh, gosh. Well, I am a person who is under 40, which means that most of my working life as an artist has been defined by the feature that the rent goes up faster than my pay. Now, 
as a independent musician, maybe that has something to do with, well, I can't rehearse in my house anymore because my house is too small or too close to somebody else. But something similar happens with venues. As rent prices go up, as fancy stuff ends up closer and closer to venues and, and rehearsal halls, you have this sort of tension between those two things. If you don't own your building and a condo goes in next door, then you, you have a pretty decent sense that maybe that low margin creative business is going to get replaced sometime soon. And we're all aware of that sort of gentrification thing that can happen of pushing folks out. However, if you do own your building and many venues are lucky to do so, that does not necessarily spell the end of the story. How the laws are set up around noise and nuisance activities is that noise and nuisance is in the eye of the complainer. So practically, if I have been running a little bar that has music six nights a week for 30 years, and there hasn't really been a whole lot of residential stuff close to it that whole time, and then somebody drops a seven-story condo right next to my venue, if they think it's too loud, it's too loud. They don't necessarily have to do anything in advance to warn anybody. You're moving in next to a venue. You should build a nice thick wall next to it. None of that stuff. We protect the residential folks as if they're the ones who don't have any power in the situation. But that's not entirely the case. So this can result in a lot of closing businesses, a lot of closing places to play music. But it needn't be the case. Now, for 20 years, there has been a slate of policies around the country and around the world called acoustic zoning policies, sometimes referred to as the agent of change principle, that says, hey, look, if you're going to build a big old housing complex right next door to a venue, that's great. We need housing, but you should make sure that the people who move in know. And if you're going to share a wall with that building, you need to make sure that it can withstand some decibels of bass. We're going to put that into the front end so we're not having conflict on the back end. And this saves venues. That's been passed in San Francisco, everywhere, nationally in the UK, a bunch of cities in Australia. And we think that it should come here to Portland. Well, Evan, can you go a little further on that? Are there any examples of what that actually looks like? I can understand it certainly in the hypothetical, but what about here in Portland? What does that look like on the ground? Well, I want to give you two examples. One example is the famous Crystal Ballroom. Now, you're aware that the Crystal Ballroom, perhaps, has a parking lot next to it? Of course. Yeah. Indeed. That parking lot is great for a big apartment building. You could build, I think, to 12 or 14 stories on that apartment building. And if you did so, it would share a wall with the stage wall of the Crystal. Now, under current rules, there would be no requirements for that building to have any kind of sound abatement or any thinking ahead for how to share a wall with an active music venue in a way that wouldn't cause problems for the people living in that apartment building. And we've seen this happen in a lot of places. What happens is lawsuits. They could sue the Crystal, somebody living in one of those apartments, or the management company to either invest in sound abatement on that wall or to stop having shows after a certain hour, usually 10 p.m. And this would be a huge cost to the Crystal and a huge loss for the city. Now, somewhere like the Crystal Ballroom might have the financial wherewithal to do something about that, to hire some lawyers, to engage in advance. So let me give you another example, something like the Landmark Saloon, where a big development did, in fact, go in next to the Landmark Saloon. 
and the complaints started. There was no notification for folks moving into that complex in advance. And so not just noise complaints, but also curiously some complaints about fire safety, some complaints about garbage pickup. And those resulted in some sanctions on when the landmark could have music and when they could have events. And that's sort of been sorted out over the course of the last couple of years, but it did in fact end up shutting events down after 10 p.m. in a couple of cases. And you could see a lot more of that around the city. So Mara, coming back to you, we're talking a lot about the music industry broadly. And the obvious example that everybody can think of in their head is the local venues happening, you know, with local live music or a bar show. Obviously, the music economy is so much bigger than that. Who are we talking about when we're talking about Portland musicians and the music industry broadly? Absolutely. The live scene is so well known and internationally referenced. We're usually in the top five U.S. music cities because we've got this incredible, diverse, authentic community of, at this point, 100% locally owned and curated venues, which is enormously valuable to our identity as a music city. But as you said in the intro, that's not everybody. There's obviously all of the live production crew. There are, I believe at last count, something like 80 recording studios in greater Portland. There are 65 instrument and gear manufacturers. There are giant companies like CD Baby. There's Discogs in Beaverton. There are, I think when people hear the number, density, and diversity of music industry that's happening here, the things outside of performance, they're always surprised. And in fact, I know we'll talk about it, but I think the numbers surprise people as well in terms of economic impact. But, you know, if you look at the number of venues that we have, which just prior to COVID were more than 330 that had live music three or more times a week, that's an incredible number of fan bodies that are sustaining that much music. And that, I think, is part of the ecosystem we need to remember is that Portland is really committed to participating in music. And so that, in addition to all of the industry, the musicians, the venues, it is, I think, without hyperbole, the largest industry in greater Portland. And we're working hard to make sure that that's recognized and acknowledged. Well, tell me a little bit more about that. That's not hyperbole. That is an actual economic fact. But how do we know that? And what kind of numbers are we talking about? Well, we just completed the first in history Oregon commercial music census that was statewide. And then Business Oregon hired the PSU economist with NERC to complete an economic impact study. This was because the state legislature, through the lobby of Music Oregon and Music Portland, committed to identify commercial music and live performance as emerging economic sectors. That's a game changer for us because not only are we a valuable cultural asset, but really identifying us as an economic resource is key to being able to sustain and grow the sector. So we did the study and our census had more than 3,000 respondents and it was everything from all the different sectors, production, instrument and gear, venues, business representation, distribution, all of it. And that informed the economic impact study that used additional 
normal industry schema and tracking systems. But what The Economist discovered was that music is virtually untrackable through traditional schema because schema hasn't kept up with music. Like there's no industry code for digital distribution of music. So CD Baby continues to be listed as other retail excluding tobacco, which means music doesn't get credit for the economic activity that they're creating. So the biggest takeaway from the economic study was that we need to do more study, which is good news. But the outcome of it said that we have $3.8 billion in economic output. This is commercial music. And that, I think, has stunned people to see that with caveats saying this is underreporting because of the flaws in tracking with the system, this is an enormous factor with a billion dollars of labor income. And that's just the beginning. I think it's going to keep growing. And with this data, we can continue to advocate for supportive policy, for promotion, for all of the things that are needed by the music community to sustain itself and continue to grow. So I had the pleasure of serving in City Hall in Portland, and that was how I first got introduced to Music Portland. As I said in my introduction, I spent my early 20s as a semi-professional musician, and when I was first introduced to the collaborative effort that Mara and Bruce and the different entities that were trying to organize on behalf of the music industry, it was exactly what I understood was necessary for the success of this industry. One thing that has been extraordinarily helpful is the level of organization that Music Portland has been able to bring. And in fact, the first major policy and effort that ever can be attributed to this organization was the Musician Loading Zone program that the city of Portland implemented in 2018, I believe. Now, this is the first musician loading zone, official musician loading zone program in the state of Oregon. And I was lucky to be on the inside of government helping advocate for this as a policy. But Bruce, maybe you could talk a little bit about the collaborative effort that your organization helped do in bringing that. And Mara, maybe you can jump in as well about how, even though it was a long process, how that win came together and how that proposal came together. Well, this was something that in one way or another we had been working on as the local musicians union here for a number of years. We had run into roadblocks with previous mayoral staff or city government entities in trying to move this along. Some of our locals, including Seattle and Nashville, had successfully implemented something similar, although different than what we eventually got put in place here. And it was uh, you, Jamie, and Commissioner Fish that came to the local one day, and this was one of the items that we discussed at that point in trying to implement and pretty much got a thumbs up from Commissioner Fish and yourself and were able to, at a certain juncture down the road, when Mira came onto the scene with Music Portland and we had reached out to Music Portland just in general because, you know, I felt that what they were looking at doing and what we have historically done had certainly were mutually beneficial for each organization. We joined forces on this particular issue and were able to get that in place. I think, Jamie, you've said several times that the proposal that was put together by our secretary treasurer, Mont Chris Hubbard, was one of the more effective presentations you had seen and answered all the questions, put everything together that made it an easy 
move to uh, success on this. Yeah. And I think Bruce and his team had been working on this issue and it just hadn't been able to move. What Music Portland does as an entity is to represent the sort of the complete range. We advocate as much for venues as we do for artists. The union certainly supports the whole ecology, but they really focus on workers' rights and making sure that it's possible to be a music worker, a music creator. And I think that the combined forces of us really underscores what Portland music needs, which is solidarity. We need to stand together. We need to know that we are stronger in unity than we are separately. And I'm speaking to everybody listening who is in a genre community, and they only know people in their own genre. Or I'm talking to producers that only know the artists that come to their studio. We need to come out. We need to come together. And that's a big part of what Music Portland has always done with our monthly gatherings every first Monday, really trying to remind people that Standing together is where our power comes from and where our creative opportunities and new collaborations come from. And it's the easiest, most enjoyable way to do it. It's also about supporting the organizations that are supporting you. So we have our membership is $25 a year because we know there are so many of us that we can sustain our work with that. But Every time someone says, oh, that won't matter, I don't need to do that, it hurts our cause. So I hope everybody will sign up and do that and that everybody will take a look at the union and all that they offer. But it is really important that we stand together. That's where the future of music in Portland resides. And if people sit it out, every person sitting it out compromises our future collectively. You know, my experience inside of City Hall was that different elected officials, all the staff, all the different bureaucrats have certainly appreciate and support the idea of music, but no one had ever taken the time to stop and think about what music independently needs as an industry. My experience has been that to the arts community, professional music has been seen as a business. That shows up in the amount of money that is received from arts funding organizations to the musicians. It shows up in how policy is crafted and how well-meaning investments from leadership and local elected officials and business leaders has left musicians a little high and dry. Evan, could you tell us a little bit about some of the strategic work that the Music Policy Council and Music Portland have been doing regarding the regulation of noise generally in Portland and starting with the Noise Review Board and all the wonky details that they get to deal with? Oh, sure. Well, I'll try. I'll try to be brief, Jamie, (laughs) to the best of my ability. So it's a long-standing concern by many people in Portland and elsewhere as well. You make some music and it's a little loud and you can get complaints and get in trouble, have to stop. Whether you're a venue or somebody working at home, it's generally understood that enforcement of these rules and complaints about sound volume is not really genre neutral which also means that it's not community neutral or race neutral necessarily. And so... Well, wait, uh, what what does that mean? Well, you can look at it a couple of different ways. I think the simplest way to put it is that 100 decibels of folk music and 100 decibels of trap are read differently 
by police and by some neighbors in Portland. And one is perhaps viewed as more of a problem than another. There's a generous way to look at that, which is to say, well, there's more bass in one kind of music than the other. And bass tends to travel through substances, through walls more. And so raises more eyebrows or more concerns, perhaps. And there's a less generous and perhaps more accurate way of putting it, which is when you imagine who's showing up, if you happen to have some implicit bias, some racism, perhaps, in your bones, you think about who's showing up to this? Who am I afraid of? And we engage in more policing of black and brown people than of white people. And so you, oh, I'm worried about that trap music. Let's call police rather than just talking to them or thinking to ourselves, this will end soon <laughs> in a reasonable amount of time. And this criminalizes cultural activity and music. And I would say it's a bad thing and that it's a pattern that's existed in Portland for a long time. Obviously, we want people to behave themselves and be good neighbors and take care of their communities. The issue that somebody like me finds with a purely complaint-oriented system, you complain and we come, great, is that there's no standard for what's allowed and what's not. So we've been doing some work to understand, so what are the standards in Portland? What constitutes a, a reasonable noise complaint? Well, sure, like if I'm gonna throw a barbecue or have a live band play in my block party, I can go down to the city and get a noise permit, right? Why wouldn't that allow me to just be guaranteed to have my block party? Why do I always have to worry about the police still showing up? Well, you would think that a noise permit would solve that problem, but unfortunately it doesn't. We have sort of two different noise control systems in the city. One which has a permitting process, which has objective standards, like here's the decibel limit for you and things like that. And that all lives in the buildings and development part of city government. And then we have kind of a workaround. We have a police code that is not really interested in clear limits or permits or things like that purely responds to complaints, which uh, the number of that code, which you'll hear more of from us is 14A30. And that is a completely subjective code standard. And it just lives next to the objective code standard that I just discussed. So you can go ahead and you can get a permit, a parks permit or a noise variance permit, and still be in violation of the police code if somebody decides to complain. So the police can still come, can still tell you to do something. If you show them your, your permit, it may not matter. And we think that that's a problem. In a literal sense, it is a violation of the 14th Amendment. <laughs> so that's an issue. You know, you need to be able to predict what's going to happen, whether you're following the law or not, if you think you are. And it's been a huge part of closure of Black-owned music venues around the city. What seems to be good behavior under the one code system, finding a way into the other code system, and then turning into sanctions on businesses. Well, okay, if you violate 14A30, even if you're good under the permitting system, even if you're good, you did everything you were supposed to, but if they decide that you violate 14A30, it can end up in this whole other liquor control system and things like, well, you can't have music after 10 p.m. can be turned onto you. Uh, you can find yourself in administrative court in the city and your liquor license can get pulled. And that's happened to a number of particularly Black-owned businesses in town. So our target is to get rid of 14A30. You don't need two noise codes. One is enough. 
you can know what's going on and you can just deal with it. Eben, if I can add to that, one of the interesting things that happened last summer, you know, it's not just, you mentioned the 10 o'clock curfew for noise. In Washington Park, it's actually 8 o'clock due to the neighbors in that vicinity. And we had a concert in the Rose Garden in Washington Park last summer that had to start later because of the heat that was going on. In other words, OSHA has rules about working in the heat, and we had to postpone until the sun went behind the trees and the temperature came down a few degrees. Given that emergency situation where you have OSHA saying you can't, the workers, the musicians can't perform because of the heat outside, having to delay their start, you still could not go beyond that eight o'clock limit, even though, you know, it was a 15, 20 minute late start. They could have done their full show and been done at 8.20, but that couldn't happen. And so, again, the noise code is not even consistent amongst the city itself and certainly can't react to emergency type situations like this. I want to take one more shot at this and just say the reality of our noise code system in Portland is that it seems like it's standardized, but it's not. For everything, there is a workaround that's meant to serve neighbors. To some extent, that's reasonable, but it just means in practice that the rules shift constantly for what you're supposed to do in order to be right with the law. And that's a huge problem. And as Bruce said, it makes problems constantly for people. So what we're pushing for, and we're pushing for this in City Hall right now, is just to move towards standardization so people can predict how things are going to work and have clear processes to get permits and that, that those permits will mean something when they operate within them. The work that Music Portland and Music Policy Council are working on is strategic, it's long-term, and it's built intentionally around the idea of building a better Portland and building a Portland where musicians can afford to live here and the music industry thrives and makes the rest of our region a reason for people to move here. The city of Portland has always played lip service to supporting the music industry, but liking the music industry and supporting the music industry are different things. I appreciate that the city of Portland is currently going through a cultural arts plan, and we're hoping to hear big things out of that that will come and give specific goals for the city to try and actually support the music industry the way that it needs to be supported. Mara, I'm going to give you the last word here. We're going to be in the radio feeds every month talking about specific, strategic, policy-focused advocacy ways that people can make this city better, how leaders can support it better. But how can people get involved? And what are you hoping that the cultural arts plan will bring to the success of the music industry? And how can people learn more about Music Portland? Last question first, musicportland.org. And musicportland.org, you can hit a join button and become a part of the movement. It's very simple. We also have monthly gatherings. So everybody should just start engaging. We have a biweekly newsletter that is chock full of information specifically and exclusively for the local music professionals, whether you're a producer or an artist or a venue or any of it. The cultural plan is going to be interesting in the same way that the economic recognition by the state legislature in the resulting report will change perceptions and realities in a data-driven way. The cultural plan, for the first time 
having commercial music, nominally for-profit music, recognized as part of this cultural planning process is a big deal. It's a big change, and we appreciate that the city and the region is including us in this conversation. I think that the opportunities to support popular music are very different than the legacy arts. And that we've been happy working with the group defining the cultural plan that they do seem to recognize that the type of support is different than what has been traditionally provided or is needed by legacy arts organizations and creators. So we're hopeful, we're cautiously hopeful, but the important thing is that Music Portland and its policy council is going to continue to watch all of these things. We are the eyes and ears of local music, and it's important that we have the support of the community that we represent, not only, you know, the small financial investment, but we want to hear from you. We live and die by the lived experience of the people that we represent, and it's really important that that conversation is an active one. So I really hope everybody will come and join us. Come to a first Monday, check us out, meet us, write to us via the website. And we're excited. We're cautiously very hopeful about the future for music in Portland. Mary McLaughlin, Bruce Fife, Eben Hoffer, thank you all for being here. On behalf of Music Portland and the Music Policy Council, I'm Jamie Dunphy. Thanks for listening to Music Policy Hour. Have a lovely day. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Stumptown Soundcheck on Portland Radio Project. We hope that you've enjoyed our informative discussion on Portland's music scene and its significance in our society and economy. Please be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and help us spread the word about the importance of supporting local music. Stumptown Soundcheck is a production of Portland Radio Project in collaboration with Music Portland. Our episode was edited by Daniel Lin. Episodes air the fourth Sunday of every month. Until next time, stay connected to PRP and keep advocating for our vibrant music community.